Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we are back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more lights, and more love. Well, speaking of knowledge, my God, we have an incredible author today. His name's Ronnie Pontiac, and he wrote a recent book called American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World, and it is chock full of knowledge. It's incredibly dense. I'm super honored that he's here. We're going to talk to him in just a second. But first, I need you to do something for me. Follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. You can follow me there. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Audible, Stitcher, wherever you go to get your podcasts, click that button that connects us so you know exactly what's happening when somebody like ronnie pontiac comes on the show you get that notification your device you know instantly through the ether and most importantly tell a friend word of mouth tell everyone you know your friends your co-workers your neighbors go door to door whatever you feel you want to do do that bring them here midnightsonearth.com okay so we're almost to ronnie But we have to read his bio, so here we go. Ronnie Pontiac worked as Manly P. Hall's research assistant, screener, and designated substitute lecturer for seven years. He's a producer of award-winning documentaries and has written for Invisible College Magazine, Newtopia, Metapsychosis, Occult of Personality, and Reality Sandwich. A member of the band Lucid Nation, he lives in Los Angeles with his wife, Tamara Lucid, author of Making the Ordinary Extraordinary, and he's here with us today. Hello, Ronnie. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. Thank you for having me on your show. Oh, my God. I can't wait to talk to you. Thank you for being here. It's it's going to be an incredible episode because of this book that you wrote it's so powerful it's there's so much going on here it seems like an incredible breakdown of america's metaphysical history there's just and more and more and more and more so wow uh thank you for being here again so okay let's help people understand this you wrote this book the american metaphysical religion well what is that what is the american metaphysical religion It's a new area of study in academia. That's where the term actually came from that only got started in earnest in the 2000s and really exploded in the 2010s. And it's a catch-all phrase for all kinds of alternative spiritual paths that were left out of academia for generations upon generations. So, for example, until even in the mid-20th century, it was considered radical to look at the Pentecostals. Um, you were only supposed to be studying the great religious institutions of monotheism, 
that had created civilization according to that vision at that time of what history looked like. And so what happened, especially beginning in the 2000s, was a new philosophy took over in academia, which is still highly controversial. And the idea was, we're not here to judge whether these things are true or false. We're here to report accurately what happened and, and who it in, was involved in it. And, and people can decide for themselves what they think about these, these traditions that we uncover. That opened up a tremendous amount of new information that really changed how I view America. And I hope that the book will help people to see that there's this whole other side of America. And I sometimes refer to it as America's other shadow, because as we know, many of us are raised to grow up with a certain sense of what America is, and we're supposed to trust it and have tears in our eyes when the Star Spangled Banner is played and the government is always trustworthy and America has never done anything bad in the world. We defend freedom. And then usually around adolescence, at least for the last several generations, there is the acquaintance with the American shadow. If we're fortunate enough to get that far and not to experience it ourselves at even younger ages. And so then we discover, okay, actually, there's a lot of problems going on. America has done things both in the world and to its own citizens that are historically proven and very disturbing. And so now we begin to think of it as, well, in America is just a, a liar, if you will, <laughs> that it's a shadow that really runs everything, this empire that's underneath the republic. But this book, in my humble opinion, thanks to the research of all these academics, shows that there's another shadow of America that is, to me, very thrilling. And they call it American metaphysical religion. Now, in academia, there are people who argue that there is no such thing. It's that they just think it's a clever phrase for a bunch of unconnected superstitions that maybe don't even deserve serious study. But there are also academics who are pointing out that this tradition goes way back in Western esotericism and that most of what we could find in Europe, even in the early days, pre-Renaissance and going back into the pagan days with the Neoplatonists and, and the wisdom of those hermetic writers of, of probably the Neoplatonic times, that we are finding the same ideas that we are finding in most of American metaphysical religion. And that, in fact, it's possible that maybe someday this will evolve into a real religion because when you count up all the people that are interested in things like tarot and astrology and speaking to their relatives who have passed on and Egyptology and revivals of ancient religions and people who are into Hermeticism and into Kabbalah and usually and also Eastern traditions, I should mention, which are also saturated through all of this then what we find is that, in fact, most of us have experienced a selection of some of these things. And in the 1950s, there was a feeling in academia and in psychiatry that this was a very dangerous thing. They used to call it bricolage or Sheilaism. And it meant that people were just taking what they wanted here and there and saying that this was spirituality. And they felt, no, this isn't spirituality. This is self-delusion. And in the end, the result will be that we won't have any of the cohesiveness that organized religion gives to our society. And these people will probably find that when they face the tragedies of life, 
they really have nowhere to turn because these these collections that they put together will fall apart. But what we have seen since then through the new age and, and on into the 2000s is that in fact, many, many people are putting together these personalized forms of spirituality, that these are withstanding their experiences and they are creating community. And we see that very much in social media and in podcasting where big communities are coming together around these ideas. If we were to count everybody that is into this kind of hodgepodge of concepts, we're looking at millions and millions of people, something around the size of the Methodist church at least. So what happens if, if all of these people become self-aware? Maybe someday in 100 years or 200 years, this turns into a religion. And as we have seen in history, this happens sometimes. So for example, when the Aryans came out of the north and they took over India, eventually over hundreds of years, they, they became uh, proponents of the religion of the conquered people. They started to practice yoga and, and the, you couldn't really see the difference at a certain point as these religions evolved. And in Rome, the same thing happened. <clears throat> Excuse me, they conquered ancient Greece but Greek philosophy and theater became the culture of Rome, basically. So we could be going through this process slowly in America. And when you see what we're facing in terms of, of just uh, the economic and, and um, climate related challenges that are going on, we can wonder if the, the native, the indigenous ideas about, about how to be in harmony with nature and how to live in a way where everyone can have enough will eventually wind up enlightening our society. And that may become then the time when there is some kind of institutionalized American metaphysical religion. But that's that's really just speculation. <laughs> wow. Well, I think that it's happening now and I think we will get to that point and it will be fused with the high technology and the other things that we've gained through inspiration. We will have that. I mean, it seems like that's what humanity is building towards, but I want to back you up a little bit because I think that what you're saying is that with this metaphysical potential religion that could manifest there's all these people around the country we're talking about america here specifically all of these people with these fringe beliefs but yet they're all interconnected there's something some thread that binds all of it and that could activate everyone in such a way that feel that way that they could choose to coalesce and group and is that because these things are universal truths, like people are picking and choosing, like you're saying, and people noticed that, but they're picking and choosing universal truths that resonate with their higher self. They're not just picking concepts that feel comfortable and maybe they do in some way, but it's a higher comfort. There's some kind of universal truth activation that's within all of that. And people can sense when these things within religion are not accurate. They feel abrasive energetically. And so people have rejected those, but embrace the things that feel energetically proper. What do you think about that? I think you're right. And I think we have such a changing terrain. So for example, for most of human history, unfortunately, it was very important to emphasize religious identity and nationalism because you were fighting other predatory nations and races. 
And most of this was driven by, by climate changes, droughts that happened. So one group of people would move and they would invade somewhere else. And you, you had to keep this strongly cohesive, very specific kind of structure, often around a militarized autocratic re uh, leadership. And, and today, actually, that approach is very dangerous to all of us. It, it isn't survival anymore. Back in the right. day, you, it, it, you could survive that. But, but today, we endanger the entire world when we engage in that, those kinds of, of thinking and, and that kind of insulated uh, sense of us and them. So the other thing is that, that it's been inculcated into us by organized religions that have been very powerful and want to defend their power that they alone are the truth and all other ways are false and dangerous and will lead to eternal torment. And the viewpoint I think that people are beginning to come around to, and this is something that Manley Hall definitely felt, and I, I learned from him, and, and just from my own reading of world religion, my feeling about it is that, that all of these different approaches, whether organized or unorganized, are really talking about the same human experience, the way that, that the, the humans work, the way the human psyche experiences evolution and learning and transcendence. The accidents of time and place, the, the, the language, the, the features of the society or of the surrounding flora and fauna are not really differences. They're, they can appear to be very different. And I would argue, for example, that let's take a really extreme example. So we, we have an organized Satanism in, in America today, and we have several organizations around it. And one would think, well, clearly, then there are Christians on this side and there are Satanists on this side, and there is nothing in common between these people. And in fact, they must be enemies. But when you actually examine Satanism, what you find is that many of the people that embrace it are people who are deeply entrenched in Christianity and found in it, as you say, discordant energy, discordant history, some form of religious autocratic urge that's very alienating. And so they turned to the opposite to see what that was like. And they found through that opposite imagery more symbols that spoke to them of the same things that people are looking for in Christianity, which is to live a good life, to have a good community around you, to, to do things that, that make you feel um, like you are in flow, in the harmony of the way things are supposed to be. And if you look at the kinds of things that modern Satanists do, they're, they're really not all that different. I mean, there are differences in terms of moral directives and such, but they also wish to contribute to the society. They want to contribute to culture. They want to uplift people, but their symbolism is so opposite from what we grow up in. So they're one, there's one example. But in my opinion, when you look at, at all the religions in the world, all the spiritual paths, they are all describing the same experience. And in America, we have this tradition from the very beginning, from the earliest days of colonization of people that were leaving these, these conformist uh, religious kind of uh, autocracies and, and trying to invent their own relationship with God. And ultimately, this culminates in Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and his wonderful observation 
where he said, very controversial at the time, why should we have to have a relationship with God that is filtered through people that lived centuries ago in other places? Why can't we have our own personal revelation, our own experience? And this all relates to the American tradition that the pursuit of happiness is a human right. And that's a very different attitude from politics and religion through most <laughs> of history. And it's affected, I believe, all spirituality in America, including uh, Christian, in that it's transformed Christianity, for example, from being a what it originally was, which was a religion that was embracing pain and poverty and saw this world as a snare of the devil and and thought that you were very likely to be damned no matter how hard you tried. So you just tried your best. And that's not American Christianity for the most part. American Christianity wants to pursue happiness. It wants prosperity. It's teaching people many forms of it that if they're not prosperous, it's because they're, they don't have the right relationship with God and the church. And so this is a, is a radical shift. Although there were small pockets of this in the history of Christianity, in America, this kind of took over. And I have argued in the book that in some ways, American Christianity resembles American metaphysical religion more than it does traditional Christianity. Absolutely. So, and it has the yeah. spirit of America in it, that freedom, that freedom of expression, that freedom of analysis, the freedom to walk away from the old world. That energy seemed to carry over in how the American Christian experience was processed. Yes, absolutely. And uh, just to back you up a little bit, though, you talked about Satanism. Now, I don't want to talk about this too much, but just from your own knowledge, isn't there concentric circles of Satanism where there are people that are essentially trying to live a fuller life with different morals, but then there are actually other groups of Satanists that are perhaps practicing uh, the rituals of old in ways that we maybe wouldn't be okay with in modern society. I suspect that that is going on. And I think it's exaggerated. Uh, I know we've had, as you know, several satanic panics that, that, <laughs> that basically vaporize into nothingness over time because they didn't really have anything underneath them. Right. But I do think that, that you have to, when you look at that kind of Satanism that we're talking about here, that these kinds of aberrations in spirituality have existed throughout time. And they exist even within monotheism where we get cults that, that get involved in, in very disturbing things and so i would just point out the obvious which is you can't really uh, avoid seeing the advertisements from lawyers who are talking about finding people who've been molested by catholic priests for example exactly and we know that this was a big subculture that was going on there and all kinds of weird stuff was happening and, and so I think that, of course, because of the very nature of it and where the whole concept of Satan comes from and the, and the fact that it was seen as a, as a negation of Christianity, that if this is going to attract people who want to commit violence or, or other really transgressive and what we would consider evil actions. And so they cloak it in this idea of Satan and, and therefore they feel that they're gaining power from this. And, you know, just on a personal note, when I was um, when I was a teenager, I, I came from a very difficult family and, and I was just this weird kid of immigrant 
parents and runt and I got beat up constantly and I just didn't belong anywhere and I had no social contract. So as I got into my teens, I, I had a lot of petty theft going on and such. And finally, in my late teens, I exploded into full nihilism and I started a band that was really negative and, and violent and I was seeking this kind of stuff. I had had spiritual experiences mostly related around um, weird interactions with wild animals like coyotes and rattlesnakes. And I felt, I felt through that, that there was some sort of spiritual communication or presence between nature and human beings, but that's about all I had. And so when I started to seek power in this negative way, I started going for all the books that I could find that promised to bring that to me. So I was looking at, at the Satanic Bible and I was looking at the works of Crowley and Austin Spare, and they all disappointed me <laughs> because, you know, really, when you scratch the surface of it, that it wasn't really that different. I mean, they were really trying to improve, for the most part, people's lives and be creative and uh, enjoy life in some way. That's not what I was looking for. So. I found I always find that amusing that that we we tend to project this great fear on to the left hand path and and Satanism and such. But in my interactions with people that were associated with with these kinds of beliefs, most of the people that I met were good people. And in fact, what had taken them into these left hand paths was their desire to find some kind of spirituality and some kind of order in the world, because all the more traditional approaches had failed them or because they had had such difficult beginnings that they couldn't identify with the more well-established and sedate approaches. I did meet people that, that seemed to have serious problems. And I met people when I was a screener for Manly Hall who had serious problems. And some of them were attracted to the idea of the demonic and the satanic. But my feeling was always, and this is what Mr. Hall taught me too, was they needed a psychologist more than they needed an exorcist. <laughs> because they were just grasping onto these concepts energetically because of some deficiency in them, whether it was abuse or mental health issue, they were then latching on. So if they could correct that, maybe the passions, the interest wouldn't be there. But I just want to comment on what you said, though. It seems like what you're saying is that there's polarity within each religion. There's the extremes of good and evil. So even in what we perceive in Western culture as this very basic Satanist concept that's very general and broad, there's just people loving people, trying to have a wonderful life and just practice in the way that represents them, that resonates with them. But also there's people doing despicable things. And just like in any religion that's happening, Clearly with Catholicism, and it's happening all over. Hare Krishna's, I've even heard terrible stories about abuse, but yet they do so much good. So it's really just about the polarity of the human experience existing exactly. within these contexts. Exactly. Wow. And you do talk about in your book how this American uh, melting pot was the reason that all of these ideas, these big esoteric ideas were intertwining, were mingling, were, were coming together. There were people, educated people, spiritual people coming from all over the world into this new world. And it's not like they checked out of their intelligence and all the knowledge that they learned. No, they shared it. They, they commingled it. They grew from it. They adapted and added more. And wasn't that the same 
in ancient Egypt as well? Isn't it isn't is America almost an analog of ancient Egypt? Because it seemed like ancient Egypt was also the center of the world where people came from all over and exchanged ideas. And here we are in America doing the same thing with even more freedom, it seems. Mm-hmm. This was a, this is a very interesting concept. It's something that, that I first ran into when I was with Manly Hall of PRS and, and around the people of PRS, especially among theosophists. And, and it was the idea that first, that America was the culmination of an experiment that, that began all the way back to ancient Egypt. And that this was an experiment in how to try to create an enlightened government. And that over time, there were attempts to do so in Europe and, and in Egypt, but they failed. And yet they, they established a precedent and the effort continued in usually very secretive ways. And one of the great explosions of this was the Rosicrucian movement, where the three Rosicrucian manifestos that were published triggered this huge controversy throughout Europe. And there were hundreds and hundreds of books and pamphlets published for and against. And it seems that what was really going on there was that inspired by certain writers, John D. Uh, Ficino, who was the father of the Renaissance, translating Plato and the Neoplatonists and the Hermetic writing, by the Hermetic writing and the Neoplatonists, by Paracelsus, by these kind of these outlaws, in a sense, of spirituality, who were trying to discover for themselves what the reality of these experiences and of evolving our souls uh, requires. And th- it turned into a huge political mess and ultimately into the Thirty Years' War. But the feelings that were captured in all these books, these many utopias were written and people were imagining what would the perfect society look like? And the whole Rosicrucian idea was around having this society of people who would would be interested in learning both scientific knowledge, but also spiritual knowledge and combining them and using them together to create a world that wasn't dominated by the Holy Roman Empire in cahoots with the Catholic Church. And so they wanted freedom of religion. And many people have argued, well, there's not a whole bunch of evidence, but there is some that that is certainly makes it suggestive and, and it could have happened, that the people that were behind the Rosicrucian Revolution that, or were inspired by it, that many of them were behind the colonization of America and that they they wanted this continent to be the place where this new experiment happened. Now, there were also structural things going on. So there were people coming in just because they wanted to get away from, from being persecuted for what they believed. And so they would move in deep into the wilderness. Some of the German pietist Rosicrucians, for example, moved deep into Pennsylvania to start colonies very early on. And we also find and we can talk about this a little bit later, but I want to get back into Egypt, um, that the pilgrims, for example, were not the, the simple, devoted Christian Puritans that we think they were. And they were actually interested in astrology and alchemy and things that we would never believe that pilgrims would be interested in. And even among them, some of them would break off and move away to begin the territory of Connecticut so they could have greater religious freedom. And 
And so, of course, Roger Smith did that in Rhode Island. So now getting back to the Egyptian idea. So the idea would be that that there have been people, whether they are esoteric societies or just enthusiasts, generation after generation, who pick up these ideas again, maybe they're reincarnated to carry it on. And they, they make these ideas available for a new world. And so the idea was that America would become this pinnacle of liberated government and of a, of a liberated population. And amongst the people at PRS and at the Theosophical Society, they used to call it capping the pyramid. Yes. And so they talked about how in the money, we have this pyramid and the all seeing eye is above it. And the all-seeing eye has, has really taken some uh, bad raps lately, <laughs> but it was originally intended to, to be your, your, call it your higher self or your soul, or your spirit, or the eye of God within us or whatever, whatever you wish. But it was meant to be this awakened consciousness, which ironically, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson described once when he had a, a cosmic conscious experience, he said it was like his entire body had just turned into one giant eyeball. Right, because he he felt he was in touch with the entire universe for a few minutes there, and in that kind of cosmic consciousness throughout history, we often see the symbol used of this big open eye with some radiance around it. And so Manley Hall used to lecture about, and he wrote about the idea that that America in particular was chosen for this great experiment, and that there was this reincarnation of Egyptians that would occur in waves as they were attempting to, to cause this capping of the pyramid to happen. So, for instance, at that time, the New Age was going on, and he felt that many of the people that were around the New Age were people that were reincarnated from Egypt. And we do see a renaissance in interest in Egyptian studies during the New Age with amazing books like Normandy Ellis's Awakening Osiris, which was a re-invention uh, almost of the, the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And, and there were also two serious revivals of Egyptian religion that occurred around that time, organized, and these became lineages of people practicing. And one of them is actually uh, recognized by the U.S. government at this point and is established all over the world. So this interest in Egypt really blossomed. And, and so the idea is that, that all of these souls who've incarnated are here for this kind of uh, this grand confrontation, right? Which is, is, it's a battle for the soul of the country. And, and the irony of it is that it, it's happening during the U.S. Pluto return. Yes. And so astrologers talk about, we all, most of us have heard of the Saturn, the dreaded Saturn return that most of us live long enough to experience twice. And, and we, we generally don't look forward to, but but a Pluto return, no human being ever experiences because it takes so long. But this country is now in its Pluto return. And we can look back in history and see, for example, what happened in Rome when Rome had two different Pluto returns. And in the first one, there was a huge plague. There were there was distribution problems in terms of food and, and other goods because of climate changes. There were wars and there was political, terrible political carnage going on. The second time it happened, Rome actually ended. 
So now we look at America and we see America in its Pluto return and we can see issues that are really big and that are going on and which way will things go is still a question. And so apparently in, in this belief system, those of us who are here trying to fight for the vision of an America that is, is a liberated place, a place where people live according to the law of love and where we respect one another and freedom of religion is practiced and there is separation between politics and religion and we are not being forced to behave in certain ways because some of us have certain beliefs. The creation of that country is incomplete. The founding fathers gave us a great start and there has been serious progress every step of the way, but we're still a long way from that ideal. And as we're seeing every time we look at the news now, we're seeing terrible pushback going on, right? We've got a proxy war going on between Ukraine and Russia, and Russia is pushing this Orthodox Christian thing, opening churches constantly. And there is, in some ways, more respect for Russian Christians than there, there is for Western liberals among some schools of American Christianity. And there is a strong push to try to force women to behave in a certain way or to reduce the rights of certain people. And, and yet, even within those movements that are trying to inflict their religious beliefs on the rest of us, there is still the sense they feel persecuted. They feel that, that, that their rights are being ignored and are being trampled. So we've got a lot of issues to work out in America right now. And, <laughs> yeah. You could say and, that again, but we're going to do it though, right? Because we're humans with infinite potential. We certainly can do it. And I'm, I'm optimistic about it. I, I feel that, that we are looking at a big generational shift. And I have a lot of hope, especially in the younger generations. But there are also a lot of people in the older generations who have a lot of experience with these matters on the spiritual side. And they've been pretty quiet. I mean, since although social media has exploded, and although interest in all of these matters is is wider than it's ever been in the history of the country and maybe in the history of the world, it's still rather quiet, right? If you think about it, there there's not a, a bunch of teachers out there. Like if, if for those of us who were involved around the new age time, it was different. There was so much going on. There were there were just blossomings everywhere of new businesses, new approaches, new ideas. And that is happening in a more restricted way in social media right now. But to me, I feel that it's setting something up that will be even bigger, some kind of a cultural renaissance where all these young people who are on social media teaching each other and fearlessly exploring this stuff. When you think about the courage, for example, of of many of these these young women. So let me give you an example. So okay. in the 1960s, um, for the book, I interviewed a great writer named Mary Kay Greer, who was one of the early great writers on the tarot, but also wrote a great book on the women of the Golden Dawn. And she was telling me that in the 1960s, uh, early 1960s, kind of early mid, she was in Florida going to school and she became interested in tarot and she could not find a tarot deck. Interesting. There were no commercially available tarot decks yet. And she eventually found like a gypsy card deck or something like that in a store someone told her about that was a pioneer metaphysical bookstore in the bad side of town <laughs> in, in the college town, right? And, and so 
not much had changed in in about I guess would that be that would be like 80 years because I write about this guy Thomas Johnson who published a newspaper called The Platonist around the time of the gunfight at the OK Corral and he could not find a tarot deck in all of America at that time. Wow. Well, today there are thousands of decks. I talked to Adam oh, McLean about it, yeah. who's one of the great collectors, and he said he couldn't even count them anymore, that he lost count over 8,000. And there are all these young women and young men on social media, and some not so young, who are teaching, just fearlessly teaching each other, this is how I do it, this is what, there's no question there, they're not embarrassed. People used to be embarrassed about that stuff. You didn't want to tell people that you, you were reading tarot cards. You had to be like careful about that. The 1960s, finally, it kind of exploded, but that was only with the counterculture where suddenly tarot cards were kind of sexy and, and in and everything like that was. Then it happens again in the 80s. So now we have people who don't have that feeling of embarrassment or fear of persecution, unless it's from others who believe like they do, who see it in different ways. So that's a big change. And I think that that's setting up something over the next 20 years, probably indicated by Pluto and Aquarius, by the way. Definitely. And, and we're going to see, I think, this big explosion of, of interest in these matters. And then even more importantly, what is the result of that, right? Because we don't want a bunch of religious fanatics running around fighting each other. What we want are people who are hooked in to their spiritual centers and who are therefore able to make choices and to do things on a higher level than they otherwise would have been able to. They're awake, if you will. Yes. And that's the idea of, of that eye above the pyramid, right? Is that, is that now we're not just this pyramid of matter, we're not just dealing with the physical world and our desires and our necessities. Now the spiritual is awake. And, and we make choices in a very different way. And what happens when enough people do that? Because in history, we see that a small group of people can do that. The New England Transcendentalists, the Rosicrucians, the ecstatic Kabbalists, it's a fed. Um, it, these are small groups who change the world. But what happens if a million, two million, ten million people hook in like that? It's very exciting. Yes, it seems like we're on a path to raise our vibration. This is the ascension that so many of our guests talk about, is that when we integrate this new information, when we connect on that level and we get to that higher spiritual place, then we're going to be something else. We're connected. We're a new human. And that's what we're working towards, it seems like. Because in the past, as you were saying, we lived in these countries, we almost treated each other like aliens from another planet, even though we were all on the same planet with these countries acted like independent planets, it seems like. But really, we're all one and we're all together on this one planet. And now in this time with this advanced technology and this ability to connect instantly and all the things that we have available to us, we can't live like that anymore. That that bandwidth of frequency is no longer possible with all the advancements that we've made. So the ascension is getting past that, getting to that new earth that so many people talk about. But I do want to ask you one thing about what you said about your incredible dissertation on America and Egypt. What was it about Egypt that was so special? Why was Egypt this place where all of these things happened, where, where plans could be made 
for future manifestations for these people. How did they have that type of awareness? What was so special about that place and why Egypt? Well, there's all kinds of answers to that question. I'm not sure any one of them is really adequate. So, for example, there are people who think that aliens from Sirius were the first colonizers and they created the ancient or, or helped create the ancient Egyptian civilization. There are people who believe that that Egypt was begun by the survivors of the destruction of Atlantis, if there was an Atlantis. So there was a very advanced civilization and it suffered this ultimate cataclysm. That's another thing that I used to hear a lot at, at the PRS actually was when they would, they, somebody would talk about genetic manipulation or some form of science that was trying to splice two forms of animals into each other. They would always say, oh boy, that's Atlantis. Must be, a reincarnated, well. <laughs> must be a reincarnated Atlantean. And the idea was that this super technology could, if it was disconnected from common sense and from simple empathy for other living beings, that it could destroy a civilization the way that Atlantis was destroyed. Now, part of it, I think, was, was the, the situation topographically in Egypt in the Delta, the fertility the, the, the whole Nile inundation and, and the way that it would, it would rise and fall was this rhythm that first was very supportive to the to culture there. And I mean, think about that. They'd survived there for over 2,000 years, like 2,500 years of civilization. We're having trouble. We're not even at 250 years <laughs> yet, right? And, and so part of that was, I think, that, that where they lived allowed them to have everything they needed to be able to, to do that. They weren't constantly facing situations they had floods they had plagues but they were they were in a better place than many other people who were trying to survive and and then also i think that because of it's very interesting they were so from the start they seemed to be very willing to accept a multitude of gods to see gods within each other to understand that the words for the gods didn't mean that they were necessarily distinct entities. So there was, you know, for example, there was the lioness goddess Sekhmet, and then there was the cat goddess Bast. And so some people would, and in ancient Egypt, they would, they would write about Sekhmet Bast. So now is that a third deity, right? You know, now we've got a Sekhmet Bast. Well, it turns out from Egyptology that probably what they were saying was they added Sekhmet to Bast to indicate that Bast was even more powerful than, than we think she is, because she's a small little cat, but she's actually a lion, right? Um, the use of metaphor in the hieroglyphics, the hieroglyphics were so rich in terms of, of the multiple meanings that they could convey. So there, were, there was humor even in it, the puns and such. So the approaches of the scribes were also very unselfish. Most of the scribes of Egypt never signed their own names. They would just sign the name of Toth, the God of Wisdom. And then ultimately, because they were open in this way, you could see different kinds of, of waves in the in the which gods became popular, representing which priesthood. So, for example, there were times when women became powerful in Egypt, especially during the New Kingdom, and especially when Hatshepsut became the first, probably the first female pharaoh. And and so this was a time when the lioness goddess Sekhmet flourished because she represented a powerful woman. She was the most invincible of all the gods and she was a woman. So this was a great symbol for a powerful woman. 
and women were allowed to have businesses and they, they were really living a kind of freedom that was very rare in the world. Later, there would be military autocracies that, that said, no, 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 we don't like that. You, you, you girls can worship Bost, have a nice little cat for your kitchen, but we don't want you being Pharaoh. The men got to run things because we got to fight <laughs> off these guys or that guys. So that would happen. But because of their, their interest in all this and, the, and their very early development of writing, Egypt became a center where the wise from all over the world came to learn and also to share knowledge. So it's fascinating that, that, for example, for so long of American history and of European history, historians were saying, well, we owe everything to Greece and Rome, but the Greeks were saying, we owe everything to the Egyptians. And they exactly. would say that Pythagoras studied in ancient Egypt or that Orpheus, the founder of the Egyptian religion in some ways, uh, I'm sorry, of the uh, Greek religion, Greek alternative religion away from the Olympian, that he studied among the Egyptians. So people were bringing these Egyptian ideas into the rest of the world, and, and they became, I believe, the, the soul, the core of Western esoteric teaching. And eventually, some of it became known as the Hermetica. And, and although I don't think that the Hermetica were written in ancient Egypt, they do seem to capture many of the ideas of ancient Egypt and were probably a Neoplatonic attempt to write all this stuff down. Ah. So. Interesting. So I think that Egypt it, it was so open to this, you know, to, to the knowledge. Now, there's a famous story. Can't recall if it was Plato or Pythagoras it was told about. It's probably not true. <laughs> but, but the idea was that one of these Greek sages went there and visited Egypt and a priest took him into a subterranean part of a temple. And there were just columns as far as he could see and writing hieroglyphics on all the columns. And the priest said, this is the history of the world, which we have written down. And this Greek was stunned <laughs> that there was, there was a, an almost an unseeable horizon of history that the Egyptians had preserved because they had existed for so long. If you think about it, they were around for a couple thousand years before Athens rose. Right, exactly. So, so that's, I think that's why Egypt. And then I did want to return to something that you said and comment on it, which is about uh, the idea of ascension and uh, the timing of all this. And, and I, I like to use this example. I think it's really useful. Um, there's a Chinese alchemical text or a spiritual text, uh, a very revered one called The Secret of the Golden Flower. And, and I think the idea that it has about the nature or anatomy of the human psyche is, is really useful. So what they say is, in a simplified version, that, that our soul metaphorically splits when we incarnate. It's not actually split, but it feels that way because part of our soul is inhabiting this universe of going on in our bodies, right? Right keeping everything going, keeping everything harmonious, and is identified with the body. And so, according to this belief system, when we are identified in that way, and it's very easy for us to lose consciousness of the part of our soul that remains unconnected or, or unimmersed in keeping the body going, all we care about is we got to keep the body healthy, 
we got to get the things we need. We have certain desires. We have certain goals. We want to change the world. Everything is external. Everything is about, in some level, it becomes about fear because we begin to be afraid of our body because something gets sick or something's wrong. Or we have that famous experience of, you know, if I got one of these over there, I mean, that's how not in touch we are in a sense with our, our own bodies. And and we begin to feel like the world is this huge permanent thing that's going to roll over us like a bulldozer, a steamroller, and there's nothing we can do about it. So we feel frail and we hate life and we want to get out. And this is why so many people live in a way that is in love with death. They, they want to get out of here. They want to get out of the claustrophobia of the soul in the body because the part of the soul that's making all this work is going whoa you know i'm used to being free i want to be able to breathe <laughs> this is this is this is awful what's going on and then i got to worry about what's going on in the world and you know if i walk down the wrong street i might get shot and all this fills our minds and and suddenly we're in the world doing bad things we we may act out in hateful or violent ways or we may choose not to lend support where we could or we may make very bad decisions and part of that is that we're making it easier for ourselves to die so for example for many people if you look at bad family relationships or bad marriages and they stay together and you wonder What's going on there? And of course, there's many psychological explanations, but one explanation is that it's really tough when you really allow yourself to fully love. When you love a person or, or a pet and then you lose them, it's an agonizing experience, although it's also one of the most spiritual and enlightening experiences that we have. And many people live lives that make it easy to... to to face death, right? Because it's a relief. I can't stand the people I'm around. I hate my life. I hate my work. <laughs> I hate my body. I can't wait to get out of here. Well, that is the lower soul in control at that point. Now, when we do some simple practices, which is basically just, they say, put your, your mind on your breathing, right? So, you, you don't stop your thinking or anything, but you just get really quiet. You slow down your breathing as much as you can. You just follow your breathing and you just like, you basically what you're doing is you're taking a break. You're stopping for a moment and you're letting yourself just feel the present moment. And often when we do that, we find that we're surrounded by beauty, by love, by people and beings and things that we cherish. And we forget about them because we're in this turmoil of trying to survive and worrying about things that aren't even in our immediate vicinity. They call that leaking in the secret of the golden flowers. So we're leaking our immortal consciousness all over this world of illusion. And then what happens is when we do this practice, we awaken the soul to its higher dimensions. And so here we have again this the eye on top of the pyramid, that eye opens up and suddenly life is the opposite. Now life seems very frail because we know everything passes. It's this miraculous beauty. We look around and we're so privileged and grateful to be around all of this mystery and all these wonderful things that are happening and all our fellow travelers. 
we feel like we're in the ultimate video game or in a lucid dream. And we're so lucky to have this time to do things here in this ultimate collaboration of artistic creativity. And we are cherishing the world and cherishing life. And, and we're not afraid because we know that we will go on, that we are eternal in our essence. And so we have this rare opportunity to learn and to help and to experience. And we're going to really make good decisions. And we're not going to be hateful and violent because when we're confronted with, with tragedies or with uh, evil, we understand that it's temporary and that it's the reflection of a tormented soul that has forgotten itself. And that's such a beautiful perspective. I mean, that's really, like you said, the higher soul's perspective. And if we can get there all the time, then that lower soul experience, the depression, the anxiety, even for some people's suicidal thoughts, it all goes away. Now, tell yeah. me, though, I do want to back you up a little bit as we talk about your book, because Freemasonry, it seems, uses a lot of Egyptian concepts and Freemasonry was part of the foundation of America. Mm -hmm. And that is carrying over, it seems, that Egyptian information. What do you think about Freemasonry's role in the creation of America and the American metaphysical history? It was very important, especially among the founding fathers. And, and Freemasonry in general was a, a way to, to explore these, these alternative approaches to spirituality. So... It had to be a secret society because it was trying to exist in the midst of Christianity. Right. And, and so I often point out that, that for example, uh, prior, to the, prior to Luther, that the Catholic Church was probably the world's greatest surveillance state of the time, uh, of, of any time until now, probably, because every confessional was a source of information for the church. Right. And everybody had to confess. So the church could find out everything that was going on everywhere. And even though priests weren't supposed to repeat the items that they learned in the confessional, they could tell their superiors if it was something important. And so people lived under this domination for, for a long time. And, and so in Freemasonry, it begins, we don't know, actually know where it begins. There, there could be Templar connections or appear to be, it could date back to ancient Egypt and to ancient Israel. To uh, they say it dates back to the Church of Solomon, uh, the Temple of Solomon. Um, we don't really know. We know that a lot of the teaching in it definitely reflects Hermetic ideas, Neoplatonic ideas. Again, this this alternate Western esoteric tradition is definitely there within Freemasonry, and and as it comes to America, after all, Freemasonry is about brotherhood. It's about helping each other. It's right. about honesty and such. So probably it's true that Freemasonry was waylaid by people who used it for other reasons. And that's part of the reason that it's got such a bad reputation. It just seems to have played such a pivotal role in the foundation of America. And then we talk about these American esoteric concepts like you detail in your book. And, and it seems like Freemasonry is just right there with all of it. General Albert Pike, yes, um, the founder, uh, uh, the, the author of Morals and Dogma, the most important book for the Scottish Rite. He's a controversial figure. 
his statue was knocked down during the uh, Black Lives Matter movement because he was a Confederate general. Right. And he he does in his book, he he doesn't challenge slavery, but he does tell people that they should treat their slaves as if they were their apprentices to lift them, to teach them. But nevertheless, he was a Confederate. And so his book, and here's the interesting thing to me about it, is filled with Neoplatonism, but also borrows generously from Eliphas Levi, who was a ceremonial magician in Paris uh, in the 1800s, a brilliant writer. And so you can see that in this book that is uh, considered a, a really a holy scripture by, by Freemasons, that the influence that's that's coming through there is pure Western esotericism. And it's organizing it in a way where it can be taught step by step to people through these rituals and through the reading and study that goes with it. So I do think that first, it really informed uh, the founding fathers, many of the founding fathers who were Masons and who were moved by what they learned through Freemasonry about fraternity and about freedom. And so then later, I think, I mean, it continues to be an influence throughout the history of the country, although it, it begins to, to, to have this. See, the thing is that, that Freemasonry and Catholicism have sort of been fighting each other for a long time. Yes. And so in America, there, there has been from the Christian side an effort to demonize Freemasonry. And we can see how Freemasons are blamed for they're the Illuminati. They're the ones who are, who are creating all this, this, this devastation in our world. Now, when I was working for Manley Hall, who was himself a 33, 33 degree Mason, and, and who I have spoken to people who think, well, he's, he must be a reptilian Illuminati if he's that. And, and um, I was able to, he recommended me. I, I ultimately didn't join because I didn't like the separation between men and women that's practiced in most of the, the rites. But I, I did get to lecture at some of the, the more beautiful temples, uh, Rose, I'm sorry, uh, Freemasonic temples in Los Angeles and Southern California. And I met Masons and they were all so wholesome and, and just really sweet, kind of usually older people who, who really meant well and were trying to do good in the community. And, and now, of course, if there was some sort of a secret cabal, it wouldn't be something that you would immediately run into. but. My experience with Manley Hall was the same. He was this very sweet, charitable, gracious human being. And I saw nothing to suggest that there were any kinds of pretensions toward power or manipulation of the masses or anything like that. Sometimes that's, that's a language problem. So, for example, the term New World Order, which was popular in Rosicrucianism and in Masonry and was something that Manley Hall would talk about, has a very ugly connotation today, and for good reason. There are people who want to establish a, a worldwide autocratic government, and that's, that's a reality. So it didn't mean that. The New World Order used to mean to people what we're talking about. Yes. The New World, where enlightened people support each other and upraise life for all of us. A united earth under love. Exactly. And I would want to point out here, this is probably the right place to put it, that um, I've always wondered, you know, why are we here, right? Because we're, are we sure? Are we, we're, well, we think we're here to learn. That seems to be pretty obvious from the way life works. Sure. 
and and what are we to make of earth we wonder and so i've asked that of many people and one of the people i asked was this amazing um medium edward a monroe who's pretty much unknown now but was uh, just a phenomenal psychic especially around uh diagnosis of, of medical conditions. He was tested actually at a university and he was over 90% accurate. And um, the spirit or whatever you want to say that spoke through him, um, I asked that spirit once about that very question. And the response is something that has always stuck with me. And it, it's a good thing to keep in mind as we hope for and we work toward this better world. He said that planet Earth is a combination of the devil's island of space and a kindergarten. And he said that it's put far away from other civilizations that exist in space for a reason. And he said that it's where all the little Hitlers from all over the universe are reincarnated within the loving grasp of Mother Earth to learn some very basic things about the responsibilities of life. And that really stuck with me because it explains an awful lot of human history. Now, he did give us some hope in that he said that Earth would evolve into away from being the school for, for delinquent souls <laughs> and it would achieve its own destiny. And he, he especially focused on how beautiful Earth is, that Earth provides this place where all these disturbed souls can come and can experience some these basic things about love and and caring and and connection and so that's always stuck with me so so i always keep in the back of my mind when i'm talking about well we've got pluto and aquarius and you know maybe we will have a huge blossoming of society that that it's ultimately up to how long this is going to be a school for delinquents. <laughs> we don't really know that. So if we get a new wave of delinquents in here, who knows what happens. But my hope is that since things are so drastic right now, that we are uh, turning it up all up a notch and that souls have come in that are here to help us to keep the school going. Yes. And, and that also that um, the the feeling of, of um, how do I put this? Um, I see, for example, I've been working on this, this lecture that I'm doing next Monday for the last Tuesday Society um, about the revival of Sekhmet and the revival of ancient Egyptian religion. And, and one of the things that I found there was this story about um, Sekhmet believers and the way they perceived what happened with this Puma P-22 that was living in Los Angeles and recently died and made world news. And the thing that was interesting to me about it was the love, the outpouring of love, not just in Los Angeles, but around the world for this big cat. Because this big cat had somehow survived in the urban environment and was, was walking down Sunset, was photographed walking down Sunset Boulevard or that he was um, resting by a motorcycle on some small street in Silver Lake. And people started posting all over social media, oh, you know, 10 years ago, he slept in my backyard and we would just, just see him down there and think it was the biggest honor in the world. And all these people, there was a huge celebration at the Greek theater for this animal. And now they are actually 
building a wildlife crossover in honor of P-22 so that other pumas will not be killed as they try to cross the freeway. And that kind of love for, for an animal, that's, not, that's new, in my opinion. Like, pumas were not a concern for people for most of American history unless they were shooting them, right? Because they were getting at the sheep. And all of a sudden, you've got a whole city full of, I mean, in L.A., I mean, you know, you know what's going on around here. And yet they all get together, people of every color, of every religion. They all got together and they were mourning the loss of this cat that they all loved. That's a hopeful sign to me. Yes, they were acknowledging its sentience, its actual individuality, the soul, the spirit of that being. They were seeing it as a being, much like Hindu people do with their animals. And that that is a indicator, I would say, of ascension. Now, I know you worked with Manly P. Hall, and I and this interview is about you, so I don't want to go into Manly P. Hall too much, but I'm such a huge fan, and people that listen to this show know that I'm a massive fan of Manly P. Hall, and I was wondering if you can clear something up for us, mm-hmm. the audience. There's been speculation that Manly P. Hall was initiated as a 33rd degree Freemason. Like, he didn't go through all the steps. He didn't do anything else. They just brought him in right at the 33rd degree. Did that happen from your knowledge? Yes. Yeah, he was he was honored with a 33rd degree because his knowledge of Freemasonry was so as I mean he, he knew more than most of the 33rd degree <laughs> Masons already. So Obviously, yeah, that yeah. yeah. Wow, because I've talked to Freemasons who Uh, They feel like they're like, how could that be possible? Because you have to go through these rituals and you have to get, you know, it's like multiple degrees system. But no, I I felt the same way. It must have been because of his immense multi-life knowledge, not just as mainly people. It was an honor. They, They just, they were recognizing the level of his knowledge. So he didn't have to go through the degrees because he already knew it all. Right. Okay. That yeah. clears up a huge misconception. I can't and I'm wait. happy to answer any questions about him. I, I always love talking about him. So feel free. <laughs> okay. Well, how did you meet him? How did you get involved in his world? Uh, I was very fortunate. I, as I already said, I started out pretty rough and I was a pretty nasty character. Right. And um, I got very lucky when I was about 20 um, I was at a club and there was a girl there who didn't seem to belong there. And she was really frightened because about five guys were targeting her and they had kind of uh, put her in a bad position and she didn't know what to do. She, she, was, she had to get somebody to help her to get these guys away from her. Or something bad was going to happen. And the owner of the club saw her looking at me. I was a scary customer all in black, smoking a black cigarette, standing in the rain, (laughs) watching people look by with a scowl of of, uh, dismissal. And he said, stay away from that guy's bad news. But she had a feeling about me and she walked up to me and I just remember, I just remember looking up at me and going, please help me. I'm so scared. Nobody had ever asked me for help. And I, I was so moved. So I did help her. And we wound up falling in love. And that was the first thing that saved my soul. She was a super honest, wonderful human being. She still is. And her name is Tamara, in case I mention her again. Yes. And so then the next thing that happened was um, 
I had a birthday, I guess it was 21. And my parents were being optimistic and gave me money for a haircut. <laughs> and maybe they just wanted to give me a, a, a present, but didn't want it to be a present or something because they were very disapproving. And I wanted to buy this book. And I had seen a book when I was a kid that was called Atlantis Mother of Empires. And it was this big book with a picture of Atlantis on the cover. And I wanted to shoplift it, something fierce. But it was big and I couldn't afford it. And I certainly couldn't steal it. And it stuck in my head, though, as this book I wanted. So when I got my hands on this money, I took it to the Bodhi Tree bookstore to the used branch, a little converted house next door. And I walked in there looking for Atlantis, the mother of empires, but they didn't have it. What they had was an old uh, copy, a sixth edition. It was a reduced size, black and white copy of the secret teachings of all ages, which was at that time called the encyclopedic outline, etc. And it was this big, impressive looking tome. It looked like a wizard would own it. And I just thought, this is great. Now, what I did not know was that the book that I had originally been looking for was actually written by the guy who was the architect of the PRS that Manley Hall founded. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was weird. It was like I was, I was, I was feeling that already, not realizing it. So I bought the book, put it on layaway, finally brought it home and read it chapter by chapter. I would go into into our bedroom and like read a chapter. And I, every time I did, I felt like somebody had just opened up my skull kind of and the sky, my brain was breathing. And and suddenly my, my nihilism about the world was transformed because I felt like, whoa, look at all these brave people. And they're, they're so creative and they, they even risk death to explore spirituality in these new different ways and to, to share it with us. And there's just all this history that I didn't know about that makes life way more interesting. And and worthwhile. So I was telling a friend about it and I was going through this paranoia about earthquakes that, that she and her family had kind of inflicted on me because they were into Edgar Casey and they thought that California was going to just drop off the edge of America any minute. And they were all moving to Virginia Beach and they did. And I was thinking about going with them because I was so spooked. And I was talking to her and I mentioned that I'd gotten this book and she said, oh my God, you know, I'll actually go to lectures that his, you know, he's still alive. He lectures not far from where you live. Wow. And I said, wow, really? I mean, <laughs> I thought he, I thought he was gone. He looked old in the book and the book was old, you know? So right. he was already, I think he was like 79 or something at that time. And I didn't want to go. I mean, I did want to go, but I was scared. Honestly, I, I knew who I'd been. I felt like my, my soul was besmirched by all the terrible things I had already done. And I, I stalled for months, just a couple months at least. And I, I finally, Tamara prevailed on me. She said, you know, he's, he's not getting any younger. And how are you going to feel if you never even go there and you never hear him? So I, I finally said, okay, let's go. And uh, it was a beautiful Sunday afternoon. He would always lecture for $1 at 11 a.m. And, and all these people were walking up, mostly older people. They, all, they were all like so cool. <laughs> they were so <laughs> intelligent and so warm. And they were, and I guess, because we were kids, they were blown away that a couple of kids showing up. They were so kind to us. Um, I went and sat down and then out comes this, this big old man, sits down in a big old velvet chair. And he just starts delivering this 90 minute incredible lecture, just so eloquent. And he looked right at me during the lecture and he said, 
People who suffer irrational fears of natural disasters like earthquakes because they're guilty about how they've been living their lives. <laughs> he also looked right at Tamara. Now, Tamara had been, as we walked up, she noticed this beautiful weed that had broken through a crack in the concrete and this, these pretty flowers that were there. And she'd made a note of it. And he looked right at her and he said, he said, souls who have had rough beginnings, but they like a small flower that works its way through the concrete. They find a way to blossom and bring beauty into the world. Wow. So we both, <laughs> as we were comparing notes, he talked right to me, he talked right to me too. Now, later I found out two important things. One, he couldn't see us. His vision was pretty bad by then. We were just, just blurry colors out there. So somehow he's, he was delivering this stuff. Was he, in, you know, I like to say that he was in the Tao because when I knew him, he was a re, he was very much a Taoist and, but was he channeling? Many people think that he was, um, whatever he was doing, I found out later that many people had this experience with him where he would talk right to them about something during a lecture. Really amazing. So we were so impressed that we decided to come back that Monday morning and volunteer, try to get a gig if we could. So they interviewed us. They loved Tamara because she had experience with office equipment. She'd had secretarial experience and uh, she'd worked in a bank briefly when she was 18 or 19. And, and so they, yeah, we, we got a place for you, but what do you do? I have nothing. <laughs> um, but they asked me the question, do you have any familiarity with foreign languages? And I said, yeah, actually, I grew up around immigrants. So I heard when I was growing up, I heard French and German and Polish and Russian and all kinds of stuff. But I wouldn't say I'm, and I can't speak them or anything. Okay, they took the, took a note down. And when we got home, the next day, there was a call, they wanted to offer Tamara a gig, but they had nothing for me. So I was I was still a dick, you know, and I, I was just, you're not going to go work there and I'm going to stay at home and, you know, forget that. <laughs> Screw them. You know, <laughs> I was terrible. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. And so then a couple days later, another call comes in and I'm told Manly Hall wants to meet you. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Come on down. So went down there the next day. He showed me into his office. He was sitting behind his beautiful ornately carved Chinese desk, this big desk. And he had his, oh my God, his office was so amazing. The vibe in there was like just so beautiful and tranquil and peaceful. And it was all this beautiful Asian art, including this huge Japanese altar that he had with all these little figures all in, in it. And it was just beautiful. And then next to him on either side were two older women. These were the women that ran PRS. And, and often compare them to a phalanx because they were they were giving me the skunk eye and they kind of were standing there with their arms folded <laughs> and he smiled and he welcomed me and and he said he said in this kind of wc fields meets barrymore accent sit down and make yourself miserable young man <laughs> so i sat down and um he had this big stack of paper in front of him and he said this is the galley for my alchemical bibliography. And I would like you to work on it for me. And he pushed it at me. And I glanced over it and there were all these, these measurements and all this historical information. And I mean, man, it was, I was way over my head. And I, I said to him, I 
can't do this. I, I don't know anything about I mean, I, I just learned a little about alchemy from reading your book. And I don't know anything about bibliographies. I don't even know what a galley is. He said, you'll be fine. <laughs> he said, I'll help you. And he said, just take it and, you know, get, get familiar with it. And then tomorrow we'll meet and, and I'll let you know where to start. Okay. So I start, I grab this thing and I, I, I walk out through his secretary's office to the library. And the woman who ran the place, the business side of the place, Pat Irvin, she, the vice president, she went running around and she like stood in front of me and she was like, give me that back. And she took it from me and I thanked her. I said, I said, thank you. I, I'm so honored, but I, I'm not the one to do this. Go back home. There's a phone call. You and Manley Hall in his office tomorrow, 9 a.m. Okay. <laughs> so I go back and now it's just him and his secretary coming in and out. Tells me to sit down, pushes it back to me. I say again, I, I, I'm not capable of doing this. He said, young man. He said, I have faith that you are. And he said, I will help you. I will, in the morning, show you what to work on that day. We can have lunch in the vault. And you can ask me questions and you can look at all the things that are in the bibliography. And then in the afternoon, before we call it a day, I'll check your work. I had to say yes. I right. mean, the opportunity was, I'm still, I mean, honestly, it's still, just like when I met Tamara, it, it, it would be easy for me to get tears in my eyes. Okay. I mean, it's, it's I bet. what happened was just so amazing. And so that's, that's what happened. And the guy that was the actual uh, bibliographer, the editor of the bibliography, who was an academic and who had gotten into a conflict with Manley Hall because he had included information about bodily fluids that were in these alchemical manuscripts. The Manley Hall didn't want it in there. And he was arguing, yeah, but this is important for academia, for academia scholars but Manley Hall was saying I don't want people to hurt themselves with this stuff and the people who are going to buy this are my followers and they're not going to want to read about bodily fluids and the guy refused and that's what gave me my opening so he was very kind to me and he, he helped me as I got started on the process and then I got to sit in the vault with Manley Hall and pick up any book I wanted and say what's this and, oh and how did you get God. it and what does it mean and yeah, it was amazing. And he was just so sweet and just, just a great human being. And that's how my book got started, because one of the books that I grabbed was this big leather bound thing that had the Platonist written on it. And when I, he said, oh, that's a good one. <laughs> and, and I picked it up and I opened it and it was a newspaper. And it was from St. Louis in the 1880s when St. Louis was still a cattle town. Right. And I could not imagine, like, what is this thing? And it was filled with translations of Plato and the Neoplatonists. And the weirdest of all was Abner Doubleday, who'd been falsely credited with inventing baseball and had been a Civil War general on the Union side who fired the first shot at Fort Sumter, had translated Eliphas Levi's Transcendental Magic, I believe it was, and it was serialized in this newspaper that was published around the time of the gunfight at the OK Corral. Wow. <laughs> Mind blowing, right? So yes. I, I, I asked him about it. I said, what, what is this thing? How did this thing come to be? And he didn't know much about it. There was almost no information about it, about the people and, and or how it came to be. So that started me. 
And I went to all the college libraries. I went everywhere I could. Eventually, I found a book written in 1962 called uh, Platonism in the Midwest. And it talked about some of this, but it raised more questions than it answered. But when that explosion happened in academia of new studies, this was one area that received a lot of attention. And in fact, one of the people, um, K. Paul Johnson, who was really a major mentor to me while I wrote this book, uh, he's a guy who uh, wrote some really important early works on what became known as American metaphysical religion. Um, he helped me to, to, to find information from direct sources because he actually went to the Thomas Johnson library that his ancestors had preserved. And this was the editor of the Platonist. And we found out all this amazing information about how popular Plato was in America at that time, that there was like a Plato fad and there were Plato parties and they weren't jokes. These were people getting together to read the platonic dialogues and to write poems about Plato or celebrate his birthday and have uplifting music. It was really, this, uh, this revelation for me. And, and also, as I researched all this stuff, I just kept finding more and more and more um, of these facts that no one seemed to know about that revealed this whole other side of America. So one I definitely want to bring up with you is, uh, because it's May 1st, is yes. Thomas Morton, the pagan pilgrim. Yes, um, I know you didn't so, want to talk about that. Now, he was the first person, as you uh, talk about in your book, he was the first American to publish a fart joke and a yes, dick joke. And he was he the was, first one to have a wild party with complaints from the neighbors and, of course, erected the first maple. Yep. And he was also the first to be foreclosed upon by a corporation, <laughs> which was the Pilgrims. Um, and the Pilgrims themselves were not what we thought they were. So I'll, I'll right, tell you about right, both right. of these. So to begin with, with the Pilgrims, in the very beginning, you've got John Winthrop, the elder. And he's the first governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony. His son, John Winthrop the Younger, fascinating and such a different vision of America and of pilgrims. He was a person who, when he was young, he left England to go to Europe searching for Rosicrucians. He wanted to become a, a Rosicrucian. He was very moved by the Rosicrucian ideas. He was also an alchemist. And he acquired a good bit of John Dee's library. And John Dee was like the ultimate occultist of Europe, uh, Queen Elizabeth's astrologer. And, and so here we have the son of a pilgrim, raised pilgrim, who is deeply into alchemy, astrology, Rosicrucianism, and in general, these esoteric studies. So when he moved to America, to follow his father, he actually marked the crates that contained his alchemical laboratory gear and his books that included John Dee's books with John Dee's symbol, the Monus Hieroglyphica, which is a, a famous esoteric symbol. And I, I point out that that's like uh, the kid of a Southern Baptist pastor putting pentagrams on his luggage. <laughs> And so he comes to Boston and he starts practicing alchemy and he found the, the Puritan culture that had developed there a little too stultifying for him. So he moved out into Connecticut, became the first governor of Connecticut territory. And there he was a famous practicing alchemist who was the most important doctor for the whole territory. 
his his various alchemical medicines were highly respected and he trained young women to go out and diagnose the main diseases that were afflicting people and he had these colored packets so they would know which medicine to give them and he also was very involved with the local indigenous cultures he protected one of the tribes that was being encroached upon by a stronger tribe he was very interested in their beliefs and in how their culture functioned and when he passed he was eulogized by cotton mather and cotton mather you know here's somebody you think this well this has to be the ultimate in christian conservatism right but Cotton Mather eulogized him as Hermes Christianus, the Christian Hermes. Wow. Right? And whether that Hermes is the Greek god Hermes or it's Hermes, Hermes Trismegistus, thrice greatest Hermes, the great father of the Hermetica in Western esotericism, it's still an outrageous comparison. It's like saying he was, he was the best Christian pagan ever. <laughs> So then now we can go from there and talk about Tom Morton. So Thomas Morton was, um, he was raised during the time of Queen Elizabeth. He was a, a boy when the Armada was threatening uh, England. And in his 50s, he was sent over by the Royalists, the Cavaliers, they used to call them, who were the other side of British culture from the Puritans. The Cavaliers would wear their wear, they, they wore their hair long. They had the, mus, the musketeer mustache and the little beard. They had these big cod pieces. <laughs> they loved getting drunk. They loved poetry and Shakespeare and, and alternate religions and paganism. And they loved wenching, they called it, womanizing. And they were as different from the Puritans as they could possibly be. And of course, they were one side of the, the civil war that occurred. They were way behind. The Puritans were establishing a strong beachhead in America, and they wanted one too. So Tom was sent over by himself in his 50s to go across the Atlantic and, and start a new trading post to represent the Cavaliers. He picked a place called Mar he called Marymount. It was a, a round, grassy, green hill right on the Atlantic. And there he built this trading post, which he also called Marymount. And this was a deliberate pun. Um, it was the mountain of Mary, but Mary Mount also meant having a good time with somebody, right? And, <laughs> and, and it was also a pun on a Latin phrase indicating the male genitalia. He was, this was what he was like. He was always punning and joking. And his, trading post was so much more successful than the pilgrims. He didn't have to have a wall around it. Um, he welcomed everybody there and they began to prefer his trading post to the pilgrims. So of course the pilgrims were infuriated and they also believed that he was arming the tribes with guns, which he was, but he was doing it so they could protect themselves from stronger tribes that were encroaching on tribes that had been decimated by the diseases that their Europeans had brought over. The pilgrims thought he was selling them guns against the pilgrims. He loved being here so much. He, he was fascinated by native culture. He would um, talk to them about their dreams and about their religious beliefs. And he even like wrote about the waters, the different springs in the area that the tribes recognized because some of them were medicinal 
Some of them were bubbling up through these beautiful crystals and were supposed to help you sleep really well. And he found all of that fascinating. Whereas the, the pilgrims were afraid of America. They were afraid of the indigenous people. It was all satanic and they, they weren't participating. He celebrated on one May 1st by putting up this giant yellow pine maypole that was said to glow like it was golden. And it had ribbons and he wrote this body poem that he, he tacked to it. And he said that he was establishing a tradition that would happen every single year. And it was addressed to a goddess. And he invited everybody, outlaws, pirates, trappers, all the indigenous people, even from tribes that were in conflict and the pilgrims who didn't attend. The pilgrims claimed that it was this crazy wild party. Everybody was, was you know, fornicating and drunk. Morton says quite the contrary. In fact, he says that he found the indigenous American women to be more moral than the British girls back home. And, and he said it was a very stately and lovely affair and, and that everyone had a very good time and it was filled with brotherly love. Well, the pilgrims had had enough. There weren't going to be any more May Days. So they came after him legally. They came after him physically. They showed up and they, they beat him up and pushed him around. They imprisoned him. They, they wound up burning down the trade post right before winter struck with, and this is the beauty of this was they invited the indigenous tribes to come watch them burn down this evil thing. Oh. And the tribes were laughing at them because they were like, what kind of an idiot burns down shelter right before winter? So they had him during that winter captured. They were starving to death. And he said, he said, let me go out and hunt for you. I swear I will come back and be your prisoner. But I, I'm not going to sit here and starve and watch you starve because you're too stupid to go out and hunt. So they said, all right, we'll go out and get some food. So he went out and he hunted. He brought back food, but not enough for everybody. So he said, let me go get the rest so the poor can eat because the rich took the food. And the pilgrim said, no, no, there's no food for the poor. He couldn't understand it. He, he just he didn't understand how they could be Christian and let their own Puritan brethren starve just because they were poor. Eventually, he escaped into into the wilderness, but then he was captured again. They marooned him on an island with almost no provisions and almost starved him to death. And they sent him back home on this terrible journey that would take him the long way, hoping that he would die before he got there. And he actually did come back. He briefly had some power behind him, but, but they, they had won. And in fact, most of his community became pilgrims and one of them became a future governor. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So here we have a very different picture of, of what was happening in the American colonies. And I have often thought of Thomas Morton as, as a founding father that was forgotten, who represented a whole nother destiny that America could have. Yes. One where everyone diversity was welcome, where where you you love nature and you appreciate its bounty. You're not afraid of it. And um, he was written out of history. I mean, he barely talked about it all. And I'd like to point out to listeners that we are recording this conversation on May 1st, 2023 honoring Mr. Thomas Morton and his May Day ritual, which seemingly was activating cosmic consciousness, right? He's bringing everyone in, not truly in a non-judgmental way, right? The Puritans were all about non-judgment, then penalizing and torturing their own people. 
he was actually living it. He was the real deal. And you did point out in your book that he saw more Christianity in the native tribes than he did in the Puritans. Yeah, that's what he wrote. He actually wrote something uh, defending uh, his point of view back in England. And in there, he said that he found more humanity among the indigenous tribes than he did amongst the Puritans. Yes, exactly. Because of yeah. that callousness, the the lack of compassion, it, it's, it's very startling. Well, to go back, to go back to the secret of the golden flower briefly, right? The pilgrims are living in that lower soul. They're afraid of the world. Mm. They're afraid of differences. They, they, they hate life. They, they, they're trying to succeed. They're ambitious. They're all wrapped up in it to such a degree that when they're offered to, they're, they're offered being the third angle of the, the slavery triangle, right? Where enslaved people are being shipped out and traded for tobacco. They take it. Ugh. These are Christians. And, and, and the thing that's amazing about Thomas Morton is that he hated slavery. And in fact, he risked his life to save some people who are being condemned to become slaves in the plantations in Virginia, in the tobacco plantations. So, so he was the opposite. He was somebody who, who despised slavery. And here the Puritans embraced it because it gave them the economic power that they longed for. It must have been very strange to have lived in those times with an activated consciousness and looking around in the earth that you're in and everyone is kind of unevolved and almost primitive. And this is across the board. I'm not talking about natural practices. I'm just talking about treating each other with love and respect. And it's just not, it must've been very strange to live during those times with that higher awareness. It was dangerous, right? So for instance, one of the writers that was so influential, influential to the Rosicrucians was Giordano Bruno. Right. And he wound up being burned at the stake for his beliefs. <laughs> and, and you do see, one of the things that's so amazing to me about early America is, so for example, in the early years of Yale and Harvard, they both had alchemical laboratories. And some of the presidents, the earliest presidents of these colleges were alchemists. And there was an early president of Yale who had run into an itinerant Kabbalist who was sort of traveling around the world and who studied Kabbalah with him in the American colonies and was so impressed by it that he gave a speech where he suggested that all American colleges should add Kabbalah to their curriculum. Wow. So there, there were these attempts and there were these moments when you could see it breaking through briefly. Wow. Well, I do want to talk about your book a little bit more. Okay. What do you think were situations in your book highlights that just blew you away? Because the bibliography of your book is absolutely startling. There's so many reference points that people can take a deeper dive into as they read your book, which is a deep dive in itself. There's even more information to not only back up what you say, but just add even more, even more. But in your research, what was something that, that you didn't know before that actually just blew your mind? There's a lot. <laughs> um, let's see. Well, there's one one that really amazing to me was the story of the Whites. This would be um, Stuart Edward White and his wife Betty, okay. the other Betty White, and they were. He was a very successful author who wrote uh, sort of Western adventure frontier stuff because that was his life. He was a real frontiersman. He was a friend of Teddy Roosevelt. 
And Teddy Roosevelt said that, that Stuart was the best shot that ever shot at Teddy's range. And, and we have now, um, there's a species of golden trout in Northern California named after Stuart and also a, a, red, a redwood grove that's named after him. He was a great outdoorsman. And his wife, Betty, had been raised um, American privilege, aristocracy, tons of money. When they met, they just sort of went off into the world together and, and spent months in the wilderness. But they also had a big mansion and a yacht. They would go yachting to Alaska. And they were at a party once, and they were playing around with a Ouija board. And Betty didn't like it. She stayed off to the corner. And the Ouija board kept saying, Betty, 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 Betty. And she thought they were playing a trick on her. And they swore, and we're not, we're not. You know, just come over here for a minute. They were using a whiskey glass as the planchette. <laughs> and, and so when she came over, the, the whiskey glass started going around in these circles like a, like a puppy that was excited. And then it's, it's just said, get a pencil, get a pencil, get a pencil. Well, she, she was just, you guys, screw you. <laughs> this is a joke. I'm out of here. But then one day she was sitting by herself at her vanity and she just grabbed a piece of paper and a pencil and all of a sudden this automatic writing happened. And she brought it to Stuart and it blew him away because first of all, it was all written without any stops. It was just continuous words. So it was difficult to, to break it all up. But when he did break it up, he found that there was this, this message there, this teaching kind of, that was really deep and, and eloquent. And he was like, what is this? So they started to experiment. And eventually she became a voice medium, but her work was not like any other medium. She did not talk to dead relatives or predict what's gonna happen in your life or uh, what your medical problem is or anything like that. Her conversations were a whole new approach and they didn't call the people that they were talking to, spirits, they called them the invisibles, which is what they wanted themselves to be called. Just call us the invisibles. The invisibles gave them this whole teaching about what they call the unobstructed universe, very similar to the golden flower. We live in the obstructed universe, but we come from the unobstructed. They're both in the same place. It's just a difference of frequency. Yes. And the meaning of life is that we, we slowly move up the quality of each form of life and acquire the utmost quantity of consciousness that that quality of consciousness can bear. And then when we reach that, we evolve to a higher form and then we collect more consciousness and we continue to do this. And so it was a, a really interesting kind of scientifically oriented thing. Physicists were interested in what she had to say. But then what happened was just before World War II, she became ill and they had been warned that something was about to happen that was going to be the culmination of their work. And Stuart thought that it must be that they had to heal Betty. So he was on this, but she just kept getting sicker. And eventually she was so sick that she was drifting in and out of a coma and she was with the doctor. He was looking at her and he, suddenly he was overcome with guilt because he realized that he was probably holding her there. So he stepped out, sat in a sofa chair, and he said out loud with nobody in the room, Betty, I love you. You can go. Don't let me keep you here. I know I'll still have you. 
you're free to go. Well, a couple minutes later, I think he said five minutes later, the doctor came out of the room and he said, she's gone. And he said, the weirdest thing happened. She woke up, she smiled at me. And he said, how could she even smile in her condition? And she said in a bright, clear voice, it's okay, doc. I had a talk with my boy. Everything's <laughs> fine now. And then she died. Whoa. Okay. Now he thinks that's it, right? So now he said he was inundated with the sense of her presence. He described it as, you know, that feeling when you're maybe sitting by a fireplace and you're reading a book and the person you love is reading a book and you're not even talking to each other, but you're feeling each other's presence in the same room. And you, you have this sense of, of just deep satisfaction and joy being together. He said he felt that times 10,000, like the strongest he'd ever felt it. And it never left him for the rest of his life. So uh -huh. he started to travel. This is right before Pearl Harbor. And his friends all wanted to, to see him and to comfort him. And he didn't want to be at home where she had passed. Everybody starts telling him stories. My God, I had this experience. And then Betty, 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 Betty. She was showing up all over the place. Weird synchronicities, dreams, just communicating to hundreds of people. He was getting letters. And he finally went to stay with the people who'd mentored them in their, in their activity. They, were, they had the nickname Joan and Darby. And they'd written a famous book that uh, right after World War I had started this whole major spiritualist upheaval of interest. And they said, would you like to do a session? And he said, yes, but no Betty, please. He said, I, I, I don't want to talk to her. And he admitted later that his fear was that if he went to any medium, even this one, and he tried to talk to Betty, the results would, would be inferior and would maybe even uh, help, it would cause him to lose some of his feeling of certainty. And he wasn't willing to do that. So Joan said, okay, well, we won't talk to Betty. We'll just talk to, to my spirit connections. How's that? He said, okay. Well, the second she went under, Betty was right there. <laughs> and the first thing she did was she called him by a nickname that she had never used in public. It was only between he and her, and it was Stute. And she went, Stute! And then he said she spent two and a half hours giving him minute details of their lives together that there was no way anybody else could know without a single mistake except one, which was a story about some blue slippers. He didn't know anything about it. He went and he asked some people. Eventually, he found out that there was a story about blue slippers, but he had forgotten it in the trauma of dealing with her illness. Wow. And so she explained to him later, yeah, I did that so you would know I wasn't reading your mind because it wasn't in your mind. Wow. So she was a hundred percent accurate for two and a half hours. So he, he wrote this book about that experience called the unobstructed universe and a few others. The book was a huge hit during world war II. really helped people who were losing their relatives in the war. And then he lived just a few years after the war lived very quietly. He never started a school. He was never a celebrity. They were hugely successful. The books were bestsellers, but he became completely forgotten because no one carried on the tradition. And when I first started writing about them, there was no information about them. And something very exciting that I found was that Carl Jung was aware of them. 
and had actually written an introduction for one of their books in the German edition. And in the in the in that book, he his introduction has sort of an agnostic approach. He's like, this is very interesting, but we don't want to say too much. But I found a letter that he wrote to a dear friend of his in which he was recommending those books and in which he said that he thought that Betty was not just an archetype, that she might be proof of a spirit having survived death. Wow. Wow. And, and it, the whole story was so impressive that who's who for the first time in its history refused to include a death date for her. <laughs> and yet at the same time in 2023, this was almost forgotten. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is, it was huge. And like you said, at the time of world war two, so much energy, Carl Jung, like all of these people. And yet whew, almost faded yeah. into history. Exactly. But captured in your book. Yeah. <laughs> when, I'm also actually, I have a book I've been working on uh, called the unobstructed way in which I try to present their teaching in a, in the simplest possible way. So that's coming soon. You're saying that, book. um, that one, I'm going to have to continue. I have the next book we have is, um, I wrote a book with Tamara called the magic of the Orphic hymns. Yes, I did see that up and that coming. will be released in August of this year. And that's the Orphic hymns were a, a huge influence on the Western esoteric tradition and on Western counterculture throughout history. It's fascinating. And we did redone versions of the hymns that are more accessible and that, that give you the, the qualities associated with the individual gods so that we can feel those correspondences. And then there's another book coming out next year um, about the Rosicrucian origins in context, looking at the, the political and the social context and finding that, that they seem to have been in their origin less es esoteric society and more like some young college students with their radical professors. And <laughs> this, I started to look at the Rosicrucian manifestos as being almost like the writing of people like Ginsburg and Kerouac. Just of um, that era. Yeah, but in that era. And, you know, there's a lot more humor in it than people realized. And it was, it was really so similar, the ideas about bringing everybody together in this, in this new world where science was going to liberate us. Interesting. And the, so then the third book you're working on is The Unobstructed Way. That's coming Yes. That, I don't know when that'll be done. We'll say that's, 2024, that's, five, 2025. Yeah, hopefully. hopefully. <laughs> we yeah. get a little preview here on the Midnight on Earth podcast. We've had an incredible discussion. I, we could go for hours. Uh, listening to you is like nectar. Like it, it's just going, <laughs> it, it's like, my God, like I'm hanging on every word and I just appreciate you giving so much, uh, speaking with us, speaking with our audience in 165 countries now. I, oh, I, wow. I, there's so much we can talk about. I, I do want to ask you one more thing about Manly sure. Hall because I love him so much okay. and I know that he's had such an impact on you. And I know this is kind of a tough question. Mm -hmm. What was it like dealing with his death? Because when I think about it, it frustrates me. It makes me angry. It, it's shocking. It's all of those things. You think about a person that literally dedicated their entire life to service service just the whole thing from as early as he could up until the day he was murdered 
And then something like that happens. Like he, like I said, he was murdered. How did you, how did you process that? The, the philosophical research society community, all the people around him to go in such a way that was so the antithesis of how perhaps you would envision someone like that graduating. How did, how did you guys process that during that time? Well, you know, it starts with, we met the man who most likely murdered him. Um, Fritz. Right. And, yes. I've read extensively about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, actually Manly Hall grew to trust Tamara more as a screener than me. Um, and, and she, I, I didn't like the guy and I, I had a bad vibe from him and I told him that, but she was adamant. She really felt something was dangerous. And she, she told him this guy is bad news. Don't, don't be around him. And we thought that was it. And then about a month later, we saw him sitting in the library and we went to Manly Hall secretary, Edith, and said, what's he doing here? And she said, oh, he's become friendly with the halls. He's, he's, he's over there a lot. And he'd never been there when we were over at the house. So we didn't know it. And and we were horrified. So Tamara was so upset that she told me, look, we're going over there right now because they had said to us, you can come by here anytime. You don't even need to call. They were that hospitable to us. And so we went over there and she talked to him and she said, she said, this, I'm telling you, this guy is bad news. You've got to be careful. And he wasn't, he, he seemed to be just kind of annoyed actually. <laughs> Marie loved the guy because he was really helping Marie, um, Manley Hall's wife. And and she said, oh, no, Fritz is great. He's getting me a computer and he brought me help and he, we're eating vegetarian food. It seemed good. I mean, on a level, um, the last time that we saw him, we uh, performed what we, we considered a welfare check, you know, and we showed up unannounced and he was there and he tried to prevent us from coming in. But Marie heard my voice and she, she invited us in and I watched him watching us while we were talking to them and Tamara wrote about it in her book and she described him as looking like a praying mantis lurking in the doorways and the corners, which is a good description of it. And then when we left, I saw him looking out the window, like, like Bates looking out the motel window Jesus. in psycho, you know, it was creepy. So she gave it one last try. Now during this whole time, he had been saying to me that he wanted me to leave PRS and he explained to me that he was getting close to leaving and that, that so were the others that were running the place and that it was going to turn into a chaotic situation most likely. And we were too young. He didn't want us involved in it. He wanted us to go out and live our own lives and, and find our own way. I thought he was testing me. So I kept going back and, and, and saying, um, I kept using the excuse of, well, what am I supposed to do next? So I would come to him and say, well, you know, I got into Harvard. Should I go get a, a graduate degree and then I could come back here and I could, I could, you know, make your, your book, your books and your work legitimate in the eyes of academia. And he was like, no, no, no. He was very familiar with my astrological chart. And he just thought, no, that's not going to work for you. And I came up with other ideas. No, no, no. And then finally I said, well, I came from music. Maybe I should go back to music. And he said, yes, do that, which shocked me because he was not a big fan at that point of the kind of music that, that I was playing. And so our last visit, 
with him was in his office where Tamara made her third attempt to warn him and she blew it. She, she lost it. She started crying and she was hysterical about it. And you could not do that around him. It, it, he just, he was not cool about it. He just put up his hand, stop. And that was it. Um, she was humiliated. She was so embarrassed by what she had done and she didn't want to come back. And I knew that we were supposed to go and I just thought, I guess this is it. I guess this is when we should go. And it was devastating for us um, to leave. I mean, it was our home and all the people that we loved, but we, this was our teacher and we had to do what he said. So, so we left and I didn't know what was happening. Um, most of the people at PRS just kind of stopped talking to us and the one person who kept talking to us, he would occasionally let me know, you know, some weird things going on there and things are being stolen. He's not coming around very often. And this Fritz guy is running the whole show and these kind of scary things. And I once there was a group of PRS people who came to me, found me and came to me and begged me to come back and try to take over the place. Having been somebody that was, uh, had been seen as kind of an heir apparent by other people because of the way he treated me. And I, I told him I can't do that. He told me not to. And he told me to, to go have my life. I'm a musician now. And the weird thing, by the way, about the musician thing was that when I first got out there to be a musician, I couldn't find anybody to play with. And I wound up playing with Tamara and Tamara wound up being the star of the band. And she had had no inclination that she was going to wind up being a musician. But looking at it in retrospect, I really wonder if the reason he sent me into music was because after looking at our charts, he knew that Tamara was going to blossom there. And she did. She made her little asterisk in music history as one of the original Riot Girls. And so when I, we found out about it, it was through the newspaper. And I was... Uh, I was pretty upset when I saw it and I came out to her, she was in the kitchen and I said, uh, I've got some bad news for you. And she, she turned around and she went, is he dead? Uh, I said, Manly Hall. And she was like, and I went, yeah. She said, was he murdered? And I said, possibly. And she said, was it Fritz? And I said, yeah. She was very upset because she felt that she had failed, you know, failed to warn him. And, God, she uh, tried. She gave everything. Yeah, but she felt that maybe if she hadn't lost her emotional balance that she might have reached him somehow. And then also the other thing was that, you know, later on, she, she became such a different person. I mean, fronting a punk band and she studied martial arts and all this stuff. So, so that Tamara was like, oh, why couldn't I have been there? You know, I would have dealt with that Fritz guy right off the, you know, now I know what to do, right? And, and so there was a lot of regret for both of us that we couldn't protect someone who was so protective of us. Um, the place completely fell apart. It, it turned into warring factions. Things were stolen. The, the, the core of the alchemical collection in that vault that I had sat with him enjoying was bought by the Getty Museum, which is probably a good thing. It's now available online. You can see everything that wow. they have from the Manley Hall collection at the Getty. Uh, online now. So that's a beautiful thing. And they're taking such great care of it. And 
Um, but it, it, the whole thing just, just collapsed and it's, it went through some serious financial straits and it survived. It's now, I think it's flourishing. It's got somebody new who's running it, uh, Dennis Bartok. And there seem to be a lot of people going there. Tamara and I, I think I've been there uh, twice since then only because it's, it's disturbing. You know, it's, it's I'm weird sure. to be there, especially his office where they, all the stuff's been taken out and it doesn't have that vibe anymore um, that it had when he was in it. And, and I find it like walking through a tomb right. in a way. And so we haven't done much. I guess I will be doing something with them at some point. We've talked about it. They, well, they I hope want so. to. It would be yeah, good I, closure. I, help them. I think it would be good closure for you to have that experience, to just have that release, I guess, both closure and release at the same time. It's just powerful. Also, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, I mean, obviously me going there potentially has ramifications that, that we don't, we, I don't want to create factions. I right? understand. So, but at some point I will certainly, I mean, we definitely, we do help them however we can kind of behind the scenes and they do sell my book in the gift store, in the gift shop. And, um, and they have spoken to me about doing events, uh, with them. And I'm sure that at some point I will, because I, I simply have to, to support them. And I also want to support the community of people that love him because, right. um, he's somebody that I had such a unique relationship with. And, and Tamara also, I mean, they were pals, real, you know, buddies. I, I mean, she, she bought him a, a, a stuffed animal for Christmas. Right. And I mean, I was just beside, it was a stuffed koala bear. And I just said, you don't give Manly Hall a, a koala bear for Christmas. All, all of our friends at PRS were saying, Tamara, really? And she was like, look, he's getting the bear. <laughs> and, and she brings it over. And, and when he sees it, he goes, Toby, it was exactly like a bear that he'd had as a as a boy that he had lost. Oh, see, she knew. Obviously, she, she knew. has some incredible <laughs> intuition. In her heart. And I, you know, I just want to close that part by just saying, you know, you did have an incredible contribution to his life. Obviously, you guys are part of the same soul group, which is a powerful thing to say. Like you've you're intertwined, and 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 just being here on this podcast talking about this add so much value to people that love Manly P Hall that don't know any of this, but what a conversation we've had <laughs> again, like we could keep going for hours and hours and hours. We barely scratched the surface. I have so many notes here that I haven't even touched. So that means that you have to come back at some point soon. To. We'd love to have you back anytime. And I do want to tell people about your book, where to get it. Of course, the book that we've been talking about, in addition to other things, is American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World, which you can find anywhere you can purchase books, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, all of those places. And if you want to send Ronnie a message, you can do that via Instagram. And his Instagram is at... The Ronnie Pontiac, all one word. You can go there. You can find him. Send him a message if you feel so inclined, if you feel drawn to uh, connect based on this interview. And my goodness, Ronnie, thank you so much for being here. Is there anything else before we go? Is there anything we didn't cover? Is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with? You know, lately this uh, 
we won't have time to talk about him, but there's somebody I talk about in my book named Phineas Quimby, who's a very interesting character and who was sort of the father of the mind cure and of new thought. And he had this saying that I, I just have been thinking it's such a great thing to meditate on. And maybe we'll leave it with that. He used to say that health is how the body experiences the eternity of the soul. Wow. That's very profound. And we do have a lot of new thought uh, people that come on and talk about it. Phineas, what was his name? Phineas Quimby. Phineas Quimby. Wow. Well, thank you again, Ronnie, so much for being here. Your book is amazing. Everything thank you've you. shared with us has been so powerful and amazing. So thank you so much again. Of course, we're having you back on. And thank you. Yes. And please hold through the outro music. Everyone, my God, what an incredible episode. Get this book. It is so dense. It is so amazing. It's incredible. And if you love Manly P. Hall, you should be attracted to this as well. Thank you, everybody. And we'll see you next week. Midnight on Earth.